I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 9 this morning, even though we looked at verses 9 and 10 last week, but just to set the context. First uh, Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. Not only that you've spoken and self-revealed the truth, but you've made sure that we have access to it, so that we can study what you've said. And your Holy Spirit then works to take what you've said and plant it within us, convicting our hearts making clear the applications. And so, Lord, we come before you this day and ask that your Holy Spirit would carry out that work. You know us perfectly. You know what we need to hear. You know what we need to do. We surrender ourselves afresh before you for this time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I began reading in verses 9 and 10 because I wanted to briefly review with you what we looked at last week, which was the four major changes in our status, or status, depending on what part of the United States you're from, uh, uh, before the Lord, after coming to know Christ as Savior. Uh, All of the changes that we looked at in verses 9 and 10 were tied solely to God's mercy. We didn't deserve any of them. We didn't earn any of them. Uh, They were not based on our behavior, our performance. They were based on God's mercy. Things he chose to do in response to our repentance and faith in the gospel. The fact of the matter is, all of us deserve judgment, uh, despair. But God gave us grace and mercy instead. And so the point of all of that is that we ought to always be sort of a humble and thankful people, not going to other people thinking, hey, hey, we got so much. Rather, we've been given so much. <laughs> we're on the same, we were in the same predicament everybody else was. Um, but God's grace was operative and his mercy was operative. We saw that first change in status was that God had made us into a chosen race. Ephesians 2 told us that we were a people without God in this world. That was the true characteristic of us. But our situation changed following the gospel and our repentance and faith in it, so that we were who were not a people now are the chosen race of God. Same terminology, by the way, that he uses of the Old Testament ethnic Jews. A chosen people of God. The second of the changed statuses had to do with being made into a royal priesthood. What we were prior to knowing Christ was anything but a royal priesthood. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us we were objects of wrath by nature, given the fact that we were all rebels against God by nature. 
But God has done this amazing thing. Earlier in First Peter, we were talking about the fact that he had made us all priests. And the priesthood of believers, which lies at the heart of the new covenant reality for those who've turned to Christ. Now he adds to that, and he says, you're all a royal priesthood, in fact. Meaning those, that portion of the priesthood, given the responsibility to serve the royal house. <laughs> we, we, are, we are serving the king of kings. I mean, we, we are in a special, very special capacity. The third of the changes is that God had made us into a holy nation. Prior to knowing Christ, this Bible describes us as unholy, wandering misfits in the midst of the world. That, that was the truth about us. But uh, we've been made into a holy nation again, prophetically. What Israel had been called to be and wasn't, uh, God has made us into that. Uh, an amazing, wonderful thing. And finally, uh, God has made us into people for his own possession. King James Version translates that, a peculiar people. Uh, and we talked about the changes in the use of, each, of English over the centuries, and where at the time that King James was being translated, peculiar meant of one's own possession, one's own ownership. Uh, but over the centuries, the word peculiar came to mean something odd, something weird. <laughs> and, uh, and while it might be well be true that there's a lot of Christians that are pretty pe- peculiar, uh, that's not the point that was trying to be coming across here. And therefore, I think the translation here is, a, is an excellent one, that we are a people of God's own possession. Once we belonged to the enemy of our souls due to our sin, now we're a people belonging to God. We're his possession. What great hope there is in that. And he ended by saying, all of these things are true, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. All of these wonderful changes are all tied to God's great intention that we would be his witnesses in this world. We are called to be proclaimers. We talked about how that linked to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where a slightly different terminology is used, but the same concept, where In verse 20 it says, Therefore we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The same concept. We are called to be proclaimers. God's done all of these things so that we might be participants in his seeking to reach out to a lost world. Efficiency-wise, and I've said this to you a number of times, it makes far more sense when we turn in repentance and faith to the gospel for God to take us right at that point. Why? Because it'd be a whole lot less struggle. We redeemed, we'd be in the presence of the Lord. So why doesn't he do that? And the answer is he has a purpose and plan for us here. We're we're given the privilege of serving him. Now in the process of doing that we grow, we mature. We seeking to grow as disciples, and God has all of that operating too. But from pure efficiency standpoint, and having been an engineer, I like efficiency terminology. Uh, would have been far more efficient just to take us to be with Him once we once we repent and believe. But God has a purpose for us, and one of the core parts of that is proclamation. May we never miss that, because you can't read any of the New Testament or old for that matter, but especially the New Testament, without being brought squarely in line with this challenge that we are to be his witnesses in this world. Which makes it all the more difficult, doesn't it, when the most pervasive problem, or at least one of the most pervasive problems of believers, redeemed believers, is silence in the face of the world in which we find ourselves. God says, 
I'm not interested in you being silent. I'm interested in you being a proclaimer, an ambassador. Well, today, picking it up in verse 11, uh, the, the, the focus shifts a little bit. And what God is now turning our attention to, not just in these two verses we're going to look at today, but in the subsequent verses as well, he's turning attention to how we can go about living successfully as sojourners and exiles in a fallen world. He's left us here. We're in the midst of a fallen world. Uh, So how are we going to go about functioning in that fallen world, living within the framework of it, and doing it successfully? And he... We're going to look at some of the principles related to that, but he begins by reminding us of that all-important truth, that we're sojourners and exiles. You remember how even the book itself began in verse 1 of the first chapter by saying, to those who are elect exiles, (laughs) that's us, that's our position. And the lessons and challenges that we receive here are framed in sort of a bit of friendly advice kind of frame. They're like, beloved, uh, Peter's writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, beloved, here's, here's some things. As sojourners and exiles, here's how you ought to be living. Uh, it's, they're framed in that sort of context of being friendly advice. But brothers and sisters, this is not only friendly advice. This is biblical command. Let's, let's, not, let's not lose sight of that. Independent of the terminology used and what Peter may be thinking at a point in time or Paul may be thinking at a point in time, it's all God-breathed. So when God says some things, he is not just offering us friendly advice. He's giving us commandments. These are the things we're supposed to do, all right? These are the things that we do. By the way, this section of of 1 Peter in the second chapter, and beyond, of course, uh, there's an important implication in all of this, which means that apparently you and I don't do such a good job living as sojourners and exiles in the midst of a fallen world. I mean, it doesn't come naturally to us how to do that successfully. And so God says, hey, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to show you how you do this. I'm going to identify for you the critical steps that you take. We need some guidance on exactly what to do. And God says, I'm giving it to you. Here's some critical advice. Number one, keep reminding yourself of who you really are. You know, after looking at those changes in status, you, could, you can get your mind all focused on the fact, oh, holy nation, and stuff like that. And God says, yeah, all of that's true. We needed to cover it and need to recognize the mercy of God that allows all that to be true. But as you're doing it, don't lose sight of the fact that I'm addressing you as exiles from the very beginning of this book. And I am addressing you here as sojourners and exiles. We need to see ourselves accurately in the framework of the fallen world in which we live. Because to see ourselves accurately impacts on how we live. It influences our behavior. God says, listen, I've left you now in this world, even though your citizenship is somewhere else. I've left you here. And I want you to stay here as sojourners and exiles. I want you to be different, in other words. This word sojourner, as it translates here in the second chapter, is the same word translated in chapter 1, verse 1, by exile. Here it's translated by the word sojourner in the English. Peripodemos is the Greek word here. 
uh, two, two combination words, really. Para meaning close, epidemos meaning foreign resident. And so the concept is foreign, foreign residents who are really close here. And the, the Greek language used that, and therefore God is using that, to distinguish between the person who's a tourist and the person who's living in a foreign land. Uh, the Greeks apparently had a lot of exposure to people who fit into both categories. And so there was a Greek word to distinguish them. God is saying, hey, you're not a tourist. Uh, our brother and, brother and sister Scott and Diane were down being tourists in some very nice areas. Uh, but they didn't live there. At least not yet, right? So, so yeah, right. So there's a, distinct, there's a distinction between being a tourist somewhere and living somewhere. And that parapodemos is that distinction. God says, make sure you understand uh, you, you are a foreigner where you are. But you're not a foreigner on tour. You're, you're a foreigner as a resident. You're, you're living here. We need to keep reminding ourselves of that. The King James Version, by the way, uh, translates at various points this Greek word parapodemos by the term pilgrim. And that's where we get that, of course, with the Mayflower and the pilgrims. That's why that term was adopted to describe them. They were not tourists when they came across the Atlantic. All right, They came to live here, uh, even though it was away from their homeland. And there's a lot more to that with them I won't go into now. But nonetheless, that word pilgrim gets at it. So as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, we have to learn how to live in an area, not merely visit it. If I'm just a tourist, I can rely on the motel, I can rely on the restaurant, I can rely on a few translators and get by for the length of time I'm somewhere where I can't speak the language. But if you're not a tourist anymore, uh, you can't keep living that way. You, you, there's there's got to be a transition where you learn to integrate in some way and survive in the other culture. God is driving that home to us. He says, I didn't leave you in this world to just be a tourist. You know, you just float around. Uh, I left you here because you're going to live here, and you've got to discover how to live here, even though you don't fit here. And by the way, that is the dilemma of all true foreigners. If they've been forced or called to live in another area, they never fit exactly, even when it's the area they're in. And so God says, listen, I've left you here, and I've consigned you to an unfittedness, in a way, during the time you're here. And so I want you to understand how to live even though you don't fit in, in a way that brings honor to me, and allows you to continue to be my spokesman, my witnesses, my proclaimers in the framework of that world. Learning to live. And then the second word, he says, sojourners and exiles, I'm reading from the ESV here, the second word in the, in the Greek sentence itself here is the Greek word peroikos, which is a related word, not a, not a greatly dissimilar word to the peripodemos, but there's a distinctive difference. The peroikos is made up of two words, para meaning close, just like in peripodemos, but the second word, oikos, means house or household. The idea in the description of it is a foreign, not just a foreigner living in a foreign land, 
rather than touring or visiting, but living, but a foreigner who is living close by the people of that land. The distinction there would be between foreigners coming, for example, to the United States, classically, let's go back some generations, they would come and they'd live in ghettoized areas. You know, they would all, if you came from Poland, you lived on, in Erie, you lived within certain blocks. That's, that's where, that, that was where you did because people spoke your language. So even though you were here, it really often took the next generation before people started to fit in. You know, up to that time, you were in your own, and, and the Italians and the Germans and everybody did the same thing. So uh, it's not, I'm not trying to put the Polish down here. I mean, in fact, I have some of that in my, in my background. I'm just using it as an example. The Greeks distinguished, and therefore God is helping us to see the distinction between people not only who are living in, in a foreign land instead of being tourists, but who are living in the midst of it, not ghettoized, not segmented. Do you see that distinction? And God says, listen, I want you to always remind yourself that you're a sojourner, not a tourist, and you are an exile, a peroikos, living in close proximity rather than ghettoized, away from natural interactions with the culture into which you've been placed. Exiles who are in but not of the world. Living close to it, but distinctive from it. Therein is our challenge. By the way, uh, I'll make note of this and we'll move on from it, but this is not the only place where we encounter it, but it is one of the places we encounter it. And we are reminded that God has not called believers to live in separate communities. God has not called believers often to communes and monasteries. He's called believers to be in the, in the midst of what's happening. He said, well, a lot of times I'd like to be in those monasteries. I'd like to be in a separated community. And God says, yeah, I know you would. But if I was really interested in separating you out, I'd take you to be with me. I didn't take you to be with me. You're here. Get rid of this monasterial, communal sort of concept. That's not where I placed you. I placed you next door to the residents of the fallen world and community in which you found yourselves. You are sojourners and exiles. And I put you in this close proximity, and I've called for you to live out your life rather than just as a tourist. I've done this so that your conduct can be observed by that lost world. So that those people who are part of it see something you wouldn't see otherwise. That's why God intends us to be countercultural. That's why, for example, Romans 12.2 commands us, don't be conformed to this world. You don't have any choice about being a sojourner in exile in it. I've called you to that. But don't be conformed to it. Uh, that nonconformity is at the heart of his call on our lives. So, I want you in the next door house reflecting the culture of a kingdom differently, different 
than the kingdom you find yourself in. So here's the question. What culture do people living around you, in your neighborhood, at work, and other, but what culture do they see represented by your life? That's the question. Do they see glimpses of the kingdom? Do they see glimpses of what it means to be made a chosen people? Do, do they see that? What do they see? To help us start to flesh it out and answer it, God now identifies two really important, I'll call them cultural contrasts. Things that he wants to distinguish his people who are living closely intermixed with the unsaved. And he says, number one, I want you to be a people who demonstrate abstinence from the passions of the flesh. And number two, I want you to be a people who demonstrate honorable conduct and good deeds in the midst of your sojourn here. Well, quite frankly, before we even look at it more extensively, anybody abstaining from the passions of the flesh and anybody whose overall conduct is honorable and good is going to stand out like a sore thumb in the midst of the world in which we find ourselves. You know, it's interesting to me, over the many years I was in the university, one of the consistent messages that I would get in conversations, uh, we'd, we have coffee and other things, and by staff, by fellow professors, even by students, they would talk about how difficult it is that they couldn't trust anybody, people were stabbing each other in the back. Sound like your workplace? <laughs> that is the reality. And, uh, and God says, listen, my exile... My sojourner is going to demonstrate something different here. It's my intention that they would demonstrate something different. Let's look at it. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He says, As a a sojourner, as an exile, don't let sinful passions rule your life. The question really reduces to this. What passions direct your actions? I mean, what is it that's driving you ultimately in the things you do in life. Does your life reflect the the spirit, the new man that you become in the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it reflect the flesh? And God says, listen, my call for you is I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Literally, in the Greek, the fleshly lust. And to the Greek mind, that included things like selfishness, self-indulgence, immoral expressions of inner drives. I mean, all of those came under that passions of the flesh concept. Here's the reality. We live in the midst of a fallen world that is basically hedonistic. The hedon is one, the hedonism is a concept that says the purpose of life is to stir up and satisfy every passion that's in you. Grab for all the gusto, as the old commercial used to put it. Grab for all the gusto. I mean, that's what the culture... It's not just the United States. I mean, it wouldn't matter what period of history we were in. It was hedonistic in one respect, in that that's what they saw you needed to do. And God says, my intention in leaving you in this world is you would be somebody that the hedonists could never figure out. Because 
they could figure out easily somebody driven by the passions of the flesh, whatever they may be. They couldn't quite figure out the person who wasn't. We live in a hedonistic culture. And God says, I want a distinctive message communicated here. And by the way, he uses the word abstinence pointedly and purposely. Why do I say that? Because the solution to the passions of the flesh, the sinful expressions that we're talking about, isn't moderation. Like, I'll keep most of them under control, or I'll only let it go this far. Uh, the, the solution to it is abstinence, not moderation. Why? Because here's the fact of the matter, and this isn't like a biblical concept. It's what I read in the secular philosophies and also psychology. You give the flesh an inch, it takes a mile. Have you ever noticed that to be true? I mean, it's like, well, I'll just do this much, and then it's like, I'll just have one chip, but you don't have... And, and they know that to be the case. That's why it becomes advertising jingles and slogans. They know that's the nature of humanity. You give an inch, all of a sudden it's a mile. You know, that, that is what happens. So the answer is don't give it an inch. You can't, you've got, if you don't want this to rain, spill out of control, don't do it. Don't do it at all. One of the theologians uh, early in my ministry I was reading, and he said, you know, really, the flesh, you can tell when this took place, too, is how old I am. This was back when we, they first began to change the cigarette industry and finally forced everybody to have surgeon general warnings on things. And on, on all the cigarette packs. But uh, he said, the flesh should come with a Surgeon General's warning on it. <laughs> yeah, at first, you don't think it's causing you a problem, but it comes back to haunt you. It's, gonna be, it's going to cause you a problem. The flesh. He says, so there's your call. You live in a world of non-abstainers. You abstain. By the way, abstaining means making sure all passions are directed and acted on in biblically proper ways. Not that you are somehow having no passion. You're, you're instead allowing it to be biblically driven, biblically controlled, biblically organized. He says, that's how I want you to live. And then he, he adds a point here, which is so crucial for us not to miss. He says... Realize these very passions of the flesh, fleshly lusts, wage war against your soul. Why do we abstain? Because the flesh actually is engaged in a war against our very souls. This wage war in the ESV translates stratioo in the Greek, from which we get the word strategy, for example. And it literally means in the Greek to fight or engage in a battle. You and I are involved in a battle. Ephesians 6 and other places reminds us of that fact and how we need to be wearing the armor of God. But understand, what God is saying here is not only that if you give rein to the passions of the flesh, that it hurts you, You'll end up doing something later you regret. Maybe you'll pick up something you wished you hadn't picked up or whatever. He's saying, understand, that's only part of it. 
The real problem is it wages war against your soul. There are soul consequences of letting those passions run. Meaning, it impacts your soul. You don't grow. You get calloused. You become insensitive to the Holy Spirit's ministry and work within you become insensitive to the Word. The more you indulge, the bigger the problem. So he says, let's recognize that's the big issue. Why? Because the health and well-being of our soul is the highest priority. Vastly higher than any wellness of your physical body. That's why I remember the... Uh, Paul says, listen, you know, bodily training is of some value. <laughs> training in godliness now, there, 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 that's the, that's the key value. Why? Because the soul is so important. Remind yourself that the flesh, as he's talking about it here, wants to destroy your spiritual walk. I mean, that's the goal. That's the strategy to destroy your spiritual walk. Remind yourself that the flesh wants to destroy the vitality of your daily walk and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's after. That's what it's trying to achieve. Remind yourself that it is very possible to be redeemed, and as a result, because of God's mercy, being given these new statuses that we talked about, and still have a sick Soul in this world. And this is not merely theoretical. Think about your own experience. There is not a person, so I don't even need a show of hands, there is not a person whose own life does not prove the disaster of the flesh. As a redeemed believer, no one. No one is merely a vicarious observer of what's happening in other people's lives. So look at your own. When you've given in, it's had its consequences. When you chose to indulge rather than abstain, over time you look back and say, boy, was that the wrong choice? You know, that was the wrong choice. So he says, remind yourself. I want you sticking out like a sore thumb in the culture you live in because for some reason you're not a hedonist and nobody can quite figure it out. That doesn't mean that you are not living and vital. It just means you're controlled in how everything is expressed. So you're puzzled to them. And they themselves will have the negative consequences of hedonism and as a result at times... Have some teachability toward the person who hasn't seemed to have the same consequences. And therefore, that's where we become the proclaimers and the sharers. The second of the cultural contrasts he gives us, he says, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. He says, be sure, as a countercultural thing, that your conduct's honorable and your deeds are good. Part of the reason that we have 
what I sort of laughingly call news reporting in the current culture. It's hardly news reporting. It's all agenda-driven stuff. But nonetheless, part of the reason we have that is because we have a lot of people whose conduct is not honorable. Uh, We have lots of people whose deeds are not good. And then we have other people who are going out of their way to twist whatever anybody else does to make it look not honorable or make it look not good. Uh, Because that's part of the human condition in a fallen world. And God says, listen, I want you to be sure that as you're living for me in this world that I've left you in, you know, living (laughs) in this context, I want you to make sure that your conduct is a certain way. It's not enough for you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, although it's good for you. It's not enough for you. What I want you to do is actively pursue honorable conduct and good deeds. Not enough to stop a bad habit. I want you to have it replaced with a good habit. Why? Because you can't leave your life a vacuum. You try to stop something. If you haven't started something else, what you tried to stop will simply come back again. That is the nature of the human condition. That's why, for example, in Ephesians 4, he says, Now put off your old self, which belongs to the old way of life and is corrupt through its desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, which has to do with the Holy Spirit's work, the Word of God. And he says, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, put off and put on. You've you got to be replacing it with something else. You can't simply try not to do something. You've got to replace it with something else that you are doing. You follow it? And so he says here, listen, I want you to be abstaining from the flesh. It's warring against your soul. Secondly, I want you at the time, same time you're doing that to be focused on honorable conduct and good deeds. He then says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. What do people see about your conduct in the world? And make no mistake about it, you you have been called to be sojourners and exiles, purposely put in a place where people can see. They don't just see what the speaker looks like or the singer looks like up on a stage. That's all. That sadly can also reduce down to just acting. Classic picture of that, by the way. Even in Christian universities and colleges, let's say you have, you're going to get your degree in vocal performance. You spend as much time getting that degree, learning how to project a persona as you do learning music theory and technique. Because it's everything on how you look on the stage, how you absorb yourself in the song, or at least how you're communicating. It's all acting, is the point. And if you don't believe that, you're naive and don't understand the realities. Does that mean everything is always acting? Well, not necessarily. Praise God, sometimes it's not. But if you've spent years training to look a certain way, then the more, it's more likely that's an act than a reality. Do you follow that? It's not just secular training I'm talking about. So what do people see in you as a pilgrim, having to live? What do, what do they see? 
He says, first of all, I want them to see honorable conduct. Conduct here is just your behavior. Honorable is kalos in the Greek, which means beautiful, actively good. Not just somebody who projects a persona of niceness. Somebody who is nice. Who is doing some things that people say, well, that was good. (laughs) That was helpful. You follow? He's looking for active things, not personas. Not projections, but active things. And he says, make sure also that they see your good deeds. The word good here, again, is is kalos, noble, beautiful, actively good, nice. Deeds, actions. What are people seeing in your life? They can't just be seeing abstinence from fleshly passions. Although they need to see that. They can't just see that. God says that's an incomplete message. If you're my children, I've left you in this world. I want them also to see the good deeds, the honorable conduct. You say, well, I I think I'm just going to concentrate on honorable deeds and good conduct. I find the passions of the flesh pretty hard to deal with. And so I'm just going to concentrate on that. Well, brothers and sisters, it won't take long before people looking at you will say, I don't know about this honorableness, and I don't know about this goodness, because I see something about their lives. That's why, by the way, people in ministries get discredited all the time. Because there are things that are not right in the passions of the flesh issue. And whatever they're teaching, people look at them and saying, oh, you're just a hypocrite. That's, you're, you're, an, you're an exploiter. We, we don't want you. Vastly more of those sort of things happening, then my heart breaks almost weekly sometime when I find something else. So uh, God says, listen, I want both there. You know, be abstainer. I want you to be doer. (laughs) I want both things happening. And then he gives us a reality check here. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, what's this? Redeemed? Given all these new status positions? committed to abstaining from the flesh, committed to living honorably, committed to good deeds. What's this when they speak against you as evildoers all about? Well, it's about this. Even when you have honorable conduct and good deeds, there are going to be people who accuse you of not having them. They accuse you of wrong. By the way, the inevitability of that is seen in the structure of the, of the verse. When, not if. When. When. I remember consulting with a church one time, and, uh, and they were struggling because a pastoral leader had been, had, had been accused of something. And, uh, and it turned out that it was wrong, it was a false accusation, but why were they struggling? Because as I counseled more, they believed that there would never be any accusation if you were doing the thing you were supposed to be doing. So anytime there was an accusation, your, your immediate assumption was, well, there's got to be some kernel of truth in this. So you go out. God tells us here, hey, You can be committed to the honorable conduct and the good deeds and be abstaining from the flesh and somebody still will twist and turn things to bring accusations against you. 
They'll do that whether you're a spiritual leader or just another believer, but they'll do that. And so God says, hey, wake up. Now, why does that happen? Because fallen man wants to assassinate Christian character. They have a vested interest in assassinating Christian character. Why? Because as we've already discovered, if you're not in the kingdom of God, you're in the enemy's kingdom. And therefore, you're going to be reflecting the enemy, even not realizing that's what you're doing, in the way you approach life. And one of the things we know about our enemy, Satan, is that he is the accuser. In fact, the Bible describes him as the great accuser. Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers... He's talking prophetically about that coming period. He says, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. So why is it so puzzling that those who have not been redeemed might reflect an accusational orientation? (laughs) Because... Remember, Jesus in John 8 said, oh, you're your father the devil. You know, he lies, he lies, lies according to his nature, <laughs> because he's a liar from the beginning. And why is it so hard to understand that believers who are not growing, instead living in carnality, rebelling against God at various points in their life, might be inclined toward accusational orientations toward others? It's, it's not hard to understand. God makes it plain to us. This is going to happen. So if you come to God and say, above all, Lord, I want you to make sure that I'm never in a situation where somebody accuses me. And if I am in such a situation, you bring somebody to my defense right away so it can be made clear that that wasn't a proper accusation. Might as well not even pray that prayer. And there's times when I tell God that, but... I do it knowingly. It's like, well, I wanted to get that off my chest, but I know that's not the way it's necessarily going to work out, Lord. Uh, Be realistic about it. There's going to be the accusation there. And so God says, "Don't, don't ask me about that not happening. But here's what you do. When you are accused... Live in such a way that eventually the accusation is shown to be wrong. Don't live in such a way that, well, I got accused, I might as well fall into it anyway, because it's what people think I'm doing. Live in a way that shows it eventually to be wrong, because God does promise vindication in that day, you remember. <laughs> uh, he, will, he will give vindication so that they may see those good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God promises vindication, but it will be seen in his timing, not ours. You know, I'm 74 years old. I had accusations made against me early in my Christian life that some people still believe. And I'm thinking, well, there it is, Lord, that's... (laughs) Even even when they were sort of proven not true, somebody still said, well, there had to be, where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, I had to. But I'm not unusual, brothers and sisters. That is the picture. People go through their whole life assuming something's true. But I know, God says, 
there will be a day when they see the truth. And the issue is, when that day comes, will the accusations against your life confirm the suspicions or reveal the error? Will the people say, I knew it? Or will they say, I was wrong? I was wrong. God says, live in such a way as a pilgrim. (laughs) You know, uh, live in this world in such a way that even if you have to wait until that day for it, people are going to have to say, I was wrong. That, that's not what was true. He says, finally, remember that the goal of having abstaining from the passions of the flesh and honorable conduct and deeds is that your life would end up glorifying God. Remember, that's how he puts it. So you can glorify God on that day of visitation. Well, I will receive and you will receive some vindication and sadly, some non-vindication <laughs> at that day. That's not the main point. The main point is, at that day, my life has an opportunity to give glory to God, even if it's been falsely accused. I can give glory to God. Are we living in a, a life as sojourners and exiles in this world that ultimately, when all is said and done, gives glory to God. Therein is the call. You're not called to live in such a way that nobody could possibly consider some false accusation. They're fallen people. Live in a way so that your life gives glory to God. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 6.20 on this. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. (laughs) All of us come before God and say, God, not everything since I've been your child will end up glorifying you on that day, except maybe indirectly to say you were still merciful to me, a sinner. But, oh Lord, may there be more. May, May there be things this day, this week, where there's more that says they see it and they glorify God. Or may there be growth, Lord. May there be growth. Well, there it is. God says, I left you here. Close proximity. Uh, Live in such a way that your life gives glory to me. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Conduct yourself honorably. Do these things realizing what will and what may not happen as a consequence of that. But always make sure you're living in a way that gives glory to me. Uh, May that be true for us. May that be true. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together in this day. The opportunity through what Christ has done to be your children. Be with us, Lord, as we seek to follow you and live to give glory to you. Use this life that you've given us, that it would have that outcome as we live surrendered to the enabling of your Spirit. For we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.